Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us this week is a special guest, my father, who is... Nick L. Thanks for joining us today, Nick L. In addition to conveniently liking movies, likely the reason I'm such an avid fan, he has been waiting since he was eight years old to play with his Lionel trains. In fact, you can join him on his YouTube channel called Nick L. Trains. Check it out after the episode. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by Nick, which is me. Today, we will be jumping into the adventure sci-fi film The Terminator by James Cameron, who is also known from Titanic, Aliens, and of course, Terminator 2. The Terminator was in theaters with other big sci-fi films such as 1984, Dune, and none other than Supergirl. This movie involves two characters being sent back in time in a plot to either protect or kill Sarah Connor. As this movie evolves, we learn the true reasons of who is good and bad, and it is an interesting story along the way. Now, why did I bring out this movie to our attention? This goes back to simpler times when children's toys were marketed for rated R movies. it's a very interesting time, and, and funny enough, I actually realized I had seen Terminator 2 before the Terminator. This is one of those rare times where I saw the sequel first, and it was a pleasant surprise re-watching this movie because I, I really do think, even though I have fond memories of Terminator 2, that this is a superior movie when it comes to the actual plot and story of it. It holds up really well. And I I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I thought it would be really good to uh, engage in a lot of conversation about this one. There's a lot of references to this movie, even throughout other films and cinema. So it just seemed like a a pivotal movie that we definitely should be discussing on this podcast. Tom, what are your thoughts? I had to say I like this a lot. I'm not a particular fan of James Cameron, and I'm not a particular fan of Terminator 2. Um, And my personal theory about Terminator 3 is that it's a tax we paid to Arnold Schwarzenegger for the first two Terminators. But I I like this a lot, and I think the reason was, it's it's interesting, this movie was not particularly successful. It was not um, top in the box office ever. And it really had a resurgence afterwards and after James Cameron made his name in, in other pictures. You know, before James Cameron became, you know, he's not only box office gold now, he's box office unobtainium. Um, you get this like tiny picture that is not scaled to the edges of the earth. And it's small, it's contained, it's, it's very dark. It has these kind of built-in ironies that are both kind of sad and interesting. And I liked it a lot more than, you know, what David Foster Wallace calls FX porn that we see later on with T2. KJ, what'd you think? Well, I remember seeing Terminator 2 when I was younger, and I know I had seen The Terminator, but I can't remember when, and I, I could vaguely remember the movie. Um, so I was also pleasantly surprised re-watching the movie for this podcast it's it's quite different than Terminator 2, and that's the one you know everybody remembers. But if Terminator 2 is 
it's not quite a buddy cop movie, but if it's a, it's more sci-fi. Um, but Terminator is a horror film. Arnold Schwarzenegger is basically Frankenstein chasing down Sarah Connor, and it is a great horror flick for most of the movie. I, I, I think the only time it kind of slows down is the action sequences, which eh, some of them work, some of them don't, but I, I love the, um, the suspense it creates for, for most of the movie. Uh, how about you, Nick L? When I first saw it, it, it was very interesting the way they opened it. Where you have all the skulls in this uh, machine with the tracks of breaking it, breaking these skulls. Well, then I thought it was really great. But when I started seeing two and three, the effects you could see were, weren't as good as two and three, just beginning. But I also did like the story of it. Because, I mean, a lot of people think of all the action and the killing and the shooting. But there was, a, there was a story there, and there was a theme between good and evil. The Terminator was the evil, and uh, Carl Reese was the, uh, wasn't the evil, was the good trying to save Sarah Connor. And the way that they did it from the future, bringing them back to, to uh, 1984, uh, was very interesting. That was set me up to look forward to see all the other ones. And I really enjoyed it. And uh, whenever, I, whenever I think of Terminator, automatically I think of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, I, I saw that movie. Um, I'm not sure if I saw it first in the uh, theater. I think I, I saw it on the, uh, the tape. There was my one-year-old son, <laughs> which is Nick. <laughs> and. Uh, it was funny to see his reaction at one years old, but I thought he would like get restless and you know how children are at that time. No, he was focused. So I said, uh oh, I think I just created a uh, a Terminator uh, a fan. <laughs> nice. Although I hope you didn't tell mom because she may have had a problem with her one year old watching a rated R film. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, as they say, when mom is happy, everybody's happy. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Oh, well, so so this has been news to me. Apparently, my first, I actually did watch The Terminator before Terminator 2, unbeknownst to me. So I'm learning something here today. Oh, that's great. Before we get into this episode a little further, we always ask the guests a critical question. What do you recommend as the perfect snack to enjoy while watching The Terminator, Nick L? That's a good question. A couple of things come to my mind, but at that time in 1984, I was much younger and I can eat a lot of different foods that I can eat now. Uh, so the first thing that comes to my mind is popcorn smothered with butter and uh, a, a, a Coke. Ah, okay. And, you can't you can't go wrong there. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you ask me, what do I do? It's uh, it's uh, peanut butter on a matzo and a cup of coffee with no milk, uh, and that's what I would probably do now. <laughs> I, I'm sure everyone does the same. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for movie quiz. In round one. Each of these questions will be worth one point. The three categories are nice night for a walk, 
come with me if you want to live and you've been targeted for termination. Nick L, as you are our guest, we will allow you to choose where we start. Which category would you like? Come with me if you want to live. It's time for question one. Kyle Reese is a resourceful and scrappy military man whose mantra is to rise against the machines in any time period of history. When Kyle returns to the hotel room with grocery bags, what is his response to Sarah's inquiry of what's for dinner? Oh, that was a, that, I didn't expect that one. <laughs> Locked in. Locked in. Locked in? Okay. Nick L, you sounded the most confident. So let's start off with you. What was in the grocery bags was uh, items to uh, create a bomb. And he had the pipes with caps. And he also had some uh, bleach, and there was, I think, baking soda, and there was something else in it. And he, this is what he told her. And I forgot what her reaction was towards that, though. But that's what I remember. Yeah, I'd say explosives. All those ingredients plus ammonia was in there, too. Um, so I, I actually couldn't remember at all. So I was kind of just picturing the last grocery bag that I had, which was like, like not cup of noodles, but it was kind of like ramen, you know, the 10 cents ramen. So I'm imagining that, which I don't even know if they had that in 1984. And Sarah Connor's reaction thinking, oh, well, this guy's from the future where they didn't have anything. Maybe he's excited about a couple of noodles. So I, I, I might be off there. I, I do think they've probably had ramen since the beginning of time, uh, but no, that was not what it is. So the points are going to go to Tom and Nick L. The exact sequence was Sarah Connor um, looks into the grocery bag that Kyle has brought back. She goes, what have we got? Mothballs, corn syrup, ammonia. What's for dinner? Kyle Reese goes, plastique. That sounds good. What is it? nitroglycerin base. It's a bit more stable. I learned to make it when I was a kid. So I thought this was uh, an interesting time to talk about one of the three main characters, Kyle Reese. He was a fighter. He was a survivor. And when, the, when, he, when he gets the flashback going back to, was it 2026? I guess technically 29? a flash forward, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> he had a young boy with him, and I didn't realize it was a young boy, a soldier. And they were out, they were at night, and the reason they do it at night is so that it's easy for them to move around, but they have to be careful because the, uh, the, the machines have infrared. And what they were trying to do is get these explosives underneath the threads of this robot tank, like, and to destroy it. And when he tells the young boy to do it, the young boy gets up, and as he throws it, he completed it, but the, uh, but the robot saw him and destroyed him. And then, actually, Carl Rhodes put his in first. And then when Carl saw that, his expression, even though as a soldier, that he lost mm. a comrade, he lost a friend, you know, and, and that, that sort of brought little motions into it. And then, of course, as the scene goes on, he's, he's moving away from it and he's going into where they, uh, they have their home base, I guess. Kyle's also a prophet, right? That he functions in that way for the movie. He's, he's a prophet of doom. He comes in and tells us that the world is going to end 
end in, unless it's both going to end inevitably. I mean, this changes in latter Terminator films, but it's going to end inevitably and it's going to end permanently unless we change our ways, unless we do this thing. And that's not a moral change. It's, you know, I have to protect you against the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, but he's still operating in that way. He comes back, he's a prophet. And as per most prophets, he's initially not believed and dismissed as a kind of a, a loony. Um, I also really liked how he had that picture of Sarah Connor in the future. So growing up, I guess, I, I don't know how old he was when he first saw it, but she was kind of like a movie star to him. There probably weren't too many pictures in the future. So now he's got this this picture of Linda Hamilton that he carries around. And um, he knows that that's the, the savior's uh, mother. And now he has an opportunity to actually go meet her and and... Um, protect her i also kind of liked how that was built up throughout the movie yeah and she's the ultimate celebrity i mean she literally was the mother of humanity in the future i mean i don't want to get too much into uh, uh christian uh symbolism but she is the virgin mary in to john connor if you want to see him as the savior what taking a different perspective i thought this really showed and the movie shows a lot that kyle reese is very resourceful that like I, I thought this line and the reason I brought up this question was that I, I know it's supposed to be funny, but he's like, yeah, I learned how to make pipe bombs when I was a kid. <laughs> like it was just a rudimentary skill set in the future. And there's a, another scene where she uh, Sarah kind of questions, will you be able to destroy him? And he's like, I don't know with these weapons, but I'm going to see what I can do. And he uses that rudimentary knowledge to, in some ways, not necessarily totally destroy the Terminator, but seriously weaken him later in the film. So he's very, he's very resourceful. And it's, it's interesting because he is very little outside of his resources. What we have from him is that he's um, this person who's been reduced to the, the function of fighting. And that seems to be everybody in the future, the reduced to this function. And um, Linda, Ham Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor, has not yet been. She's anything but resourceful. She's sort of uh, depicted as being uh, scatterbrained, unable to, to cope with very basic responsibilities. And so they, they sort of balance each other in that sense. Okay, I think I'm going to move on to the next question. Tom, I'm going to turn this one over to you. Would you like nice night for a walk or you've been targeted for termination? Nice night for a walk. It's time for question two. We, the viewer, come to realize fairly quickly that the Terminator absolutely will not stop ever until Sarah Connor is dead. However, Terminator Cyberdyne Systems Model 101 is not immortal. What are the variety of injuries sustained by the cyborg during his pursuit? For this question, we're going to go to each individual. You're going to name one, and we're going to continue until all of the injuries have been exhausted. The last man standing will get the points. So, Tom, injuries. He was blown up in a truck. Blown up in a truck. That'll do some damage. <laughs> okay. And during that, I believe that's when he's reduced to his exoskeleton. Is that the injury? Yeah, his, his skin is burnt so off. Skin burnt off. Entirely. Okay. I would say that was the first one. Uh, Nick L., what's another one of the injuries? 
One of the injuries that I'm thinking of is the one that actually eliminated him. It was a uh, a press, and and Sarah was getting away from her, and she actually goes through this press, and she realized what it is, and then the creature, which is half his body, was he was crawling through it until he got to the point, and his hand just barely catches her, and she says. Something I don't want to repeat it. <laughs> and she presses the button, and the machine just comes and crushes it. But the part that I really enjoyed, as he's crushing it and crushing it and crushing it to the point, his eye is getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, and then he, there's nothing. That's yep. that's what I I remember of it. Yeah, I think the full press is going to leave a mark. So yes, he got <laughs> he he got squished. He got squished, and. The hand was the only thing that remained, but that was, I believe, when they when they were planning on the two, they had the hand and also they had the chip. So the chip we survived. Yep, yep. They were that that was the whole plot line for Terminator Two and and to be kind of on, honest, all of them going forward. That yes. that was a pivotal moment to keep the old the future technology in what is present day for the movie. KJ, what do you got? Um, he also got a good chunk of his face shot off, right? Was it shot off? Now, now I'm questioning myself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at, at one point, um, the special effects were okay, but um, he, he half his face gets um, kind of uh, ripped off almost is what it looks like um and you can and you can see the the that red eye but his other eye is still there that is correct and that that is a scene i'm sure we'll talk about later too we're going back to tom another injury when he's been reduced to his ectoskeleton and he's walking around that factory kyle reese sticks a pipe bomb in his uh, i guess we would call it his torso which causes him to blow in half Yes, pipe bomb to the torso. <laughs> okay, back to you, Nick L. Yeah, I'm thinking of it because we seem to cover a lot of it. Yeah. Um, I don't. I guess you would consider it uh, when he was in in the uh, in the bar and he was trying to kill Sarah. Reese had the short the shotgun and he fired at him and he kept firing fine he just broke right through the glass and he had to take a few moments for him to revive and then come back yeah he he definitely took some shots there um and i it did affect like the skin layer if you will because yeah. there's a certain uh, scene where he's actually like doing some of the repairs from that damage so definitely yeah. the the residual from that firefight in the in the bar and i think that's all i got i think i'm tapped out okay Tom, do you got anything else? Would the firefight from the police station count? He, he shot about 80 times. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know if we <laughs> saw any of that, but uh, that is something that happened. I, I will say that I'm sure there was damage damage from that. There was one scene I'm specifically thinking of, but yeah, I, I'm going to give that to you. I think I could think of one more. When he is on top of the, when the Terminator is on top of the car that Kyle and Sarah are driving and they crash into a police car and he gets thrown off, he gets kind of knocked, maybe not knocked out, but knocked down for a bit. Does that count? 
That is something I'm sure he sustained injuries. The one that came to mind that I don't think we explored because I can't remember the exact sequence, but he gets uh, after that fight, one of the fight sequences, he gets a really nasty limp towards the end. He gets the limp when he is still has his exoskeleton, uh, exo, sorry, still has the skin layer on. And then when he gets reduced to the exoskeleton, you still see that he's dragging the one leg. Yeah, he's hit by a truck. Yes, yes. He's hit by a truck, and then that's he the truck. That's right before climbs yep. into the truck, and that's what he uses yeah. to chase them down. So that was the, only, the the other one that I was thinking of, and I believe this kind of goes off of the one Nick L brought up with the firefight, where he actually that's when we see the first cut of where he cuts into his arm, and he's starting to like clean things out. I thought that was with the, you know, firefight, but the one where he had the limp was the other one I was thinking of. So the point will go to Tom, but these were definitely uh, great parts of the movie. And I, I wanted to bring this up too, because the Terminator seems like this invincible character from the beginning and to some degree is pretty strong. There's an irony in the fact that he's a, he's the, you know, the biggest name in Hollywood nowadays right i mean arnold schwarzenegger if you're going to make a mount rushmore of hollywood celebrities he might be on there um he might be teddy roosevelting it but still he might be on there and he may own the mountain as well because i know and he's he, big on real estate <laughs> yeah well that's what he started he was a millionaire before he went into hollywood because of his you know his work but it, you know so looking back on this movie from these kind of uh, you know what what you might call corrupted eyes or something like that up until this point, he had done a number of movies, but he really, the, his biggest ones were the Conan films, the two Conan films he had done before this. And of course, um, Pumping Iron, but that was a documentary. And so he's got this kind of alien affect to him, both in his speech, his name is bizarre. He used to go by Arnold Strong and he started using his real name, you know, and his size is strange, right? You know, this is the 1980s. It's not, there's not as many kind of buff guys as there are today. And so everything about him is is uncanny. So the effect ends up being that he, he is sort of alien or extraterrestrial. And it's really hard as a 2020 viewer to see that because he is now like, you know, your best bud, right? It's Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's as recognizable as anybody in the world. Yeah, and I, I think they did a great job defining him as alien, um, right from that opening scene where he meets up with the bikers or not bikers, but the punks. There we go. He meets up with the punks and he's kind of repeating them because he's learning the language we find out later. But that whole thing worked really well, I think, because it was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he had a couple of sayings to this day is very famous. And I don't know if I should go into because you might have another topic on it. But the the one is when he's in the police station, he walks in and he's and the sergeant, desk sergeant is writing and he looks at him. He says, I, I am a friend of Sarah Connor and I like to see her. And he says, you can't, you know, he's, she's being interrogated or something. And he looks straight at him and he says, I'll be back. And the next moment he's driving a car through the, through the building, smashes it up and, and pins the sergeant between the wall and the desk. And then he gets out and in one hand, he's got a machine gun. In the other hand, he's got the shotgun. And then he proceeds to do what, what he normally does is to kill people. <laughs> but uh, that's what comes to my mind when I, when I think of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And at the time in 1984, 
that line caught so much. Like when I was at work, I'd hear people saying that, like joking, and they said, yes, I'll be back. <laughs> so it, it's really a catchy, I think today, you know, or if you get most people within that era, if you mentioned that, they, I'm sure it, the Terminator would come to their mind. Definitely, without a doubt. I mean, there's some iconic lines that even continue uh, in this movie as well as in some of his other works. The last category for round one is you've been targeted for termination. It's time for question three. Sarah Connor, who is apparently 19 years old according to the original script, has trouble coping with how her life will have a tremendous impact on the fate of humanity. When informed of this by Kyle Reese, what rudimentary task does Sarah imply that she's not even qualified to do? Locked in. Uh, locked in. Locked in. KJ, with the most confidence, let's start it off. Uh, and again, I, I actually don't remember the scene, so I was just thinking things that I'm not really qualified to do. Um, I, you know, I slip my shoes on and off. Um, so they get tied the first day I buy them and that's about it. So does she say she's not even qualified to tie her shoes? Well, you're locked in. So locked we'll find in. out. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, what, what is your answer? Under the bridge or in the tunnel, wherever it is, she says she's not even qualified to balance her checkbook. Okay. Tom is locked in. Nick L, what was, what is your answer? That, that's what I was going to say that she wasn't qualified to balance her checkbook. Okay, the points are going to Tom and Nick L. The exact sequence uh, is Sarah Connor in an angry fashion says, oh, come on, do I look like the mother of the future? I mean, am I tough, organized? I can't even balance my checkbook. Look, Reese, I didn't ask for this honor and I don't want it, any of it. So here we have, and I, actually the reason I pointed that out in the script about 19 years old, I actually didn't know in the movie like, was she early 20s? Like, I didn't actually have, a, like, a real strong opinion of where she was. I thought she was at a bar, that she would be at least 21, but that shows you the times. I think back then, drinking age was 18. Well, her inability to do things, and her, she, she's not particularly remarkable in any way. And we don't know that much about her, right? She can't get a, she can't maintain a date, even if she gets one. She's very bad at her job as a waitress, which isn't a particularly... Interesting job. We don't know if she's going to school or if she has any kind of ambition. All we know is she's like a little odd. She likes a lizard and, and that's about it. She's, she's kind of isolated. This, this kind of rando gets picked out of the crowd to be the mother of the future, right? This guy comes back and picks out this kind of random person who, who doesn't appear to have the qualities necessary for leadership to be the leader who you know, saves us from the apocalypse or, or generates the person who takes us through the apocalypse, that type of thing. And so it has that, again, that kind of, you know, biblical overlay, which is what, um, what James Cameron is consciously doing, right? That's why you have JC to John Connor. But the creation of her as this kind of um, very, very unremarkable person touches on the idea of the calling. You as somebody who's not, who doesn't have any qualities that people would necessarily admire are then called on to do something great. What comes to my mind is when she was uh, under the trestle and uh, she was cold and called K-2 
came close to her and then she realized he was wounded and she says to him, oh, you're wounded. He says, yeah, but that's okay. Don't worry about it. Says, what do you mean? And then she proceeds to clean it and dress it. Not at that time, but when Carl's listening to what she was saying, he says, well, you do a good field dressing. To me anyway, her emotions, something clicked. She's, she's became more aware of something positive uh, that she might be doing. And uh, that's what came to my mind. And also, she, she's a, a very carefree woman in the sense that she, she doesn't ride a car or anything. She's riding a motor a scooter and she's bouncing and she's, you know, she's very bubbly. And it seems like she doesn't have a, a care in the world until she realized that somebody's trying to kill her. <laughs> and then the reality comes in. Um, but that's what came to my mind as far as... Uh, the character of uh, Sarah Connor. I, I think I think you picked a, a very pivotal scene there too, because before that, the movie really goes above and beyond to show us how flustered <laughs> this woman is. She has nothing together. She's dropping things, as, as I think Tom was talking about when she's the waitress drop. She's dropping plates on people. She's got nothing going for her. And that did seem like the one time where she did something right and thought about, maybe her role in the future. But do you guys think she made bad decisions while being chased? In other words, I was almost impressed with her agency. She wasn't just a damsel in distress, um, you know, walking into the empty house or going down to that dark basement. She, she, she didn't seem to be making poor decisions. She's through the process of accepting the calling. She's called on to do this great thing. And she's, we see her take on that responsibility. And by the end of the movie, she's, you know, maybe not competent to train somebody in military. I mean, she's definitely not competent to train somebody in, in military engagement, but she is prepared to accept the calling. And that seems to be your arc of development, right? It's from um, flustered waitress who's like, doesn't really want this. I don't want this. I don't want any of this, which is the standard Thing that happens when somebody's called out to be a prophet or be a leader, right? And in, in the Bible, there was, you know, take take this cup away from me, Lord, that type of thing. Until the end, when she's driving into Mexico, um, ready to kind of embrace the storm, ready to embrace that responsibility. And throughout the movie, she demonstrates agency, and she demonstrates smarter and smarter decisions. Um, ending in that uh, that factory scene where she gets Kyle on his feet and she can speak with authority at that point. And, and that's when we can kind of trust that she can be the mother of the future. And KJ, I think to your point, I don't think that she's not intelligent. So I don't think there's, there's people out there who just are in their own little bubble and you know, I don't know what's going on. She just is more carefree, but I don't think it was the fact that she was not intelligent. So I get where you're going there. Okay. Well, that concludes round one. Tom is presently in the lead with three points. Nick L is putting up a good fight with two points. And KJ is also with us. So we'll see if we can get some points on the board in round two. Be right back after these messages. Previously on Marlowe's Spliced Crazed Lab Mystery. What's the case? My husband went missing two days ago. Why, he works for Splice Craze Lab. If you ever want to see your husband alive again, 
bring his super secret files to the main offices here at Jeans Jeans by midnight. I'll pack my trusty thirty-eight special and rescue your husband. You don't want to go in there. Hello, Mr. Marlowe. Are you Sir Julius Orson Greenstreet, Esquire? I have the IP in exchange for your life. No, Marlowe. Sir Julius, I'm afraid, couldn't be here. But I have a far more interesting prospect. And what is that? You think you know so much, Marlowe. You think you have the world on a string. But the power this lab, Jeans Jeans, possesses is beyond your wildest dreams. The secrets we possess would shock and terrify you. Those jokers over at Splice Craze, they may know how to do fine genetic modification, but they don't have the will to control the world. <laughs> he cackles loudly, filling the room with echoes of his madness. The IP we wanted wasn't in Sir Julius's files. In fact, there was never such a person as Sir Julius. On this note, from out of the blackness, Bacall Marlene Eliza O'Shaughnessy Rutledge stepped, her eyes a piercing blue that shatters souls. I'm sorry, she said. I never had a husband. The entire story was invented to bring you here, Marlowe, to capture that valuable intellectual property developed over at Splice Craze. I hate them, but damn, they're good. What intellectual property? I don't have the files with me, Marlowe responds. Oh, but you do. You are. All the information we need. And that is when Marlowe noticed for the first time that he was eight and a half inches tall, covered in white fur, and had claws at the end of his fingers. You were never a P.I., Marlowe, but an experiment from Splice Craze Lab to develop the perfect upright cat. And boy, did they. With self-awareness and language skills, the upright cat is the companion every family needs. And we are going to steal it. Listen, toots, I'm going to get out of this. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but one day, when you least expect it, I'm going to blow this lab. The small, bald man grabs Marlowe, who meows, but when she strokes his tummy... He falls asleep, and the bald man carries him into the cavernous labs of Jean's jeans. Outside, Andre, not normally a religious man, folds his hands in prayer. I hope they don't neuter that cat. That's why you should go with Upright Cat and any product from Splice Craze Lab. Splice Craze has the strictest ethical considerations, so you know your genetically modified cat has been treated with the utmost care. So next time you need a genetically modified pet, go with Upright Cat. Upright Cat.
Act like a man. And we're back for round two. In this round, the, the questions will be worth two points. And the categories are, hey, buddy, did you just see a real bright light? It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And there's a storm coming in. I'm going to let Nick L. start us off once again. On the one about, did you see a light? It's time for question four. Our last three episodes regarding the Back to the Future trilogy also involved a cinematic depiction of time travel. However, the rules and parameters in this movie are quite different. Specific to this 1984 film, what are the restrictions of the time displacement equipment presented in The Terminator? So what are the restrictions? I have it down to two points uh, that are restrictions. If you have more, great. But I, there, there are two points that I was. And, and I will give partial points on this question. Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. Okay. Nick L, start us off. Okay. One of the things is that <clears throat> you can't have any kind of clothes or metal or anything. You have to just be nude to travel through that uh, with into that machine, bring you into the uh, the past. And you said there's a second one. There is a second one. Yeah, I, I don't know the other one. Okay. Uh, well, uh, the next KJ, what did you have? Yeah. So that one rule is it's got to be living tissue. Uh, the exception is if the living tissue surrounds something else that can go through as well. That's how Arnold was able to get through because even though he's a machine, the living tissue surrounded. So if, if he did want to bring a gun back, he just could have loaded up a corpse. Well, not a corpse. I don't know. It might've been no, tricky. living tissue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They could have figured something out. Um, and the, uh, the second restriction I think was a power, um, um, it, it took a certain amount of power or a, a certain type of fuel that they only had in the future. And that's why they couldn't get back to the future. Um, 1.21 gigawatts. <laughs> Great Scott. <laughs> Tom, what is your answer? Nothing dead will go. It's a one way trip. Oh, Tom hit the second point there. So KJ and Nick L will receive one point. Tom will receive both points. They destroyed the machine in the future. So it had nothing to do with, I mean, to, it may have been a similar 1.21 gigawatts kind of situation, uh, but it was the fact that there, there was no machine. And in fact, the movie doesn't go into, even if there was a machine, could they pull them back? Because all we hear is one-way trip. There, the, there's a very good line in, in the movie from the, uh, uh, I don't know if he's a psychologist or psychiatrist, uh, but Dr. Silverman, uh, they're reviewing the tape of Kyle Reese when he's in the police department. And he goes, great stuff. I could make a career out of this guy. See how clever it is? It doesn't require a shred of proof. Most paranoid delusions are intricate, but this is brilliant. I almost thought this was like James Cameron making fun of himself about how he tied up the loose ends. That I don't even need to explain it. It's too simple. <laughs> He's he's an interesting character because it, in most James Cameron movies, there's we distrust institutions, right? 
Like it's, you know, like Avatar, it's the private contracted military. In T2, it's, it's the, uh, the, the mental health institution, which Dr. Silverman is a part of. Um, in other movies, you know, in Aliens, it's the faceless corporation that, you know, sends them out. Here, th there isn't a sus suspicion of institutions. Even the police are sort of and just not consequential. They're, they're not something to be sus suspicious of. And this character is the closest to that. And mostly he's just a clown, right? He's just kind of insensitive. It's not until T2 where we see him as an abuser, as somebody who's, who's actually harming people. And I thought that was interesting and, and kind of an exception to the Cameron rule of, um, you know, the, the big institution or class, like we see in Titanic, is, is abusive, is to be suspicious of. The choice of this movie wasn't planned, but I did find it interesting upon watching it that we did uh, have this place right after our Back to the Future trilogy just because they did deal with time travel. And that's why I, I wanted to bring this up a little further to see how, uh, if we if we think that the statement by Dr. Silberman resonates with how this movie was designed, and keep in mind, there was a very large gap between The Terminator, 1984, and Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which was 1991. So in a, does this play out in a self-isolated bubble for this movie? I, I think they might be following the same time travel rules of Back to the Future, which is Marty McFly's at the center of the universe, because the other movies going forward make no sense whatsoever on how they deal with, uh, with time travel. So I, I'm not too sure if they had a clear, clear goal here. Yeah, they just didn't blow up the machine until they kept sending people. <laughs> so it's, yeah, no, no one comes in, no one comes out. Nobody told Kyle that they're, they're going to send another two or three or seven people, depending on how many sequels you need. Well, that's why I'm saying isolated. In a bubble, I feel like they try to tie up all the loose ends. Once they start making it into a franchise, it comes into something else. But I, during this watch, I really try to focus on if this was the only film because for many years it was yeah actually in a bubble it works pretty well if they're if they're clipping off the time travel um we don't actually then see either the new future or the same future um no i think it works well in a bubble actually i was gonna say it works better in a bubble than it does with sequels the problem with terminator 2 in terms of this kind of uh, what Wallace calls FX porn, is that the plot makes almost no sense. You're just there for the industrial light and magic show that's going on. You know, like th th there's a narrative, but it just gets you to the payoff scenes. Um, and in this movie, that that's not the case. The special effects are not even really that great. They're more they're more trickery. They're more like magic. Like when Arnold Schwarzenegger has to, you know, the Terminator has to cut out his eye. You know how they use a. Um, you know, like cast, a plaster cast and, and uh, puppetry and things like that. And so there is a lot more focus on the narrative and the simplicity of the the rules of time travel allow that, allow focus on the narrative and it just kind of dissolves in, in T2. Okay, I'm going to jump into the next question. The remaining categories are, it doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And there's a storm coming in. KJ, I will allow you to choose the category. Let's go with it doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. It's time for question five. The director 
James Cameron does a great job taking his time to let the story unfold while exposing us to the three main characters and their motivations. At what timestamp in this one hour and 47 minute film is the true catalyst of the plot revealed to the audience? I'm looking for a minute, seconds, and again, the closest to the answer will win. I know we don't always look at the times, but just a rough idea. Prices right rules? Uh, we are going to not do prices right, closest in either direction. I'm going to lock in with something. Yeah, I'll lock in. I'll lock in too. Okay. KJ, I'm going to let you start this one off. All right. So at around um, 52 minutes and 18 seconds, um, we get a, a scene where uh, Kyle Reese is in a car in like a junkyard and they're crushing the other cars and he has a flash forward to the war. And during that flash forward, I think it's revealed that he has that picture of Sarah Connor. Um, and I think that's when we start to realize, we start to put a lot of the, the puzzle pieces together of who everybody is and how they will affect the future. So 52 minutes, 18 seconds. Indeed. Okay, Tom. <laughs> 38 minutes, 26 seconds. And <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure if it's the catalyst, but it's when... Reese and Sarah are in the car and they're trying they move from one car to another and he's trying to hide hot wire it to get out of there and he explains to her everything that happens uh, including the the birth of John Connor okay we have 38 minutes and 26 seconds Nick L when do you think that's a good question <laughs> uh well, I was going to, I was also going to say about the car, you know, when he was in the car with Sarah and he actually says it to her. Oh my, my, my. I would say it was probably, probably about 30, 32 minutes and 40 seconds. Okay. 32 minutes, 40 seconds. And actually, now that I've had more of a time to think about this, and I really should have thought about who was asking about it, I'm sticking with my timestamp because it's ahead of the other two. But I, <laughs> I imagine the catalyst is when we find out that um, Kyle Reese is the father. So if I was to pick another timestamp, it would, it would be much closer to that end time. But and let's, hear, let's hear the end. The greatest thing about this question is you could have the wrong reasoning, but the right timestamp and still take <laughs> it down. <laughs> I think it's a down between me and Nick L. Okay. The winner of this question is none other than KJ. The actual <laughs> the actual timestamp that I was looking for was 47 minutes and 40 seconds. And the catalyst is when Kyle explains about the unborn son. The specific dialogue is, he turned it around, he brought us back from the brink, his name is Connor, John Connor, your son, Sarah, your unborn son. But I thought it was interesting that in an hour and 47 minute film, it takes about 47 minutes before we truly understand uh, all of the key players' motivations, their purpose, and that we understand a little bit of the mystery that has been presented in the pretty much half of the movie. And I just thought this would be interesting to talk about, to see what your feelings were regarding the plot, the storyline, the flow, 
I purposely took a timestamp of this when I was watching it with my wife because I didn't realize how long it took for us to be divulged that information. Yeah, I thought the pacing of this movie was great. Um, that opening sequence, kind of the prologue where, um, well, there's the bit of the about the future, but when, when we're introduced to Arnold and Kyle Reese, that was great. Um, and then you cut to Sarah and you're following her for the first act. That was awesome. Yeah, I, I really thought the pacing was good. And it was also really good, the, um, the amount of information that was revealed and that slow reveal, I thought worked quite well. Yeah, the, the control of information is great in this. And I think that, you know, this, the, this slow reveal, it also gives you very little knowledge about the, the future or what's going to happen or whatnot. We know there's something called Skynet. We know it destroys the world. Um, and we know John Connor somehow saves the world and there's a time machine. Um, the, the sense of doom, this film has a real sense of doom. Um, you know, ending, ending in, in, in a storm, a literal storm. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that the future is both known and unknown. The fact that it's going to be catastrophic is known. Exactly how that's going to play out is, is unknown. And it has this um, eschatological, eschatological is like the study of end times, right? So either the study of like what happens when you die or the study of the end of the world, uh, you know, how different myths and whatnot do that. And very often, in, you know, you see this in like the book of Revelations, right? Where we know exactly what's going to happen, but we don't know anything about what's going to happen because it's all scripted in symbols. And what makes this movie so much more appealing than uh, T2, T3, or God bless us, Terminator Salvation, is that the- There's more. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. Genesis I, and Dark Fate. <laughs> I, I think I saw Genesis. I, I didn't see Dark Fate, though I'm told that actually wasn't too bad. Um, but yeah, what makes this movie so appealing is the, and I'm so kind of dark too. It really is maybe the, the darkest Cameron film is the, um, the amount of information we don't have and how carefully controlled that information is and, and how carefully he kind of dribbles it out to you. It was, it was a very fast going movie from the beginning to actually almost to the end of it. A lot of action and a lot of uh, a lot of parts that led to another part. You're on the hunt, whether you see it from the angle of the hunter or the hunted throughout this whole film. And what I really enjoyed about this one, especially since I hadn't watched it in quite some time, this is a plot-driven action film, not an action film that we threw in a plot. So I especially and not only just within the Terminator franchise, but a lot of these movies, we tend to accept that there's a loose plot within an action film. Here it actually was, they really thought through the plot line, the story. And yes, I'm sure if you really dig deep, you can still find flaws, but it was pretty tight. And there was also great action sequences and dialogue and interactions along the way. Yeah, my, my kind of personal theory of American action movies is that they're closer to ballet than anything else. That you have this kind of, uh, uh, you know, the introduction of dancers, background dancers, whatnot. And then you have a number, a show-stopping number, where everybody, uh, where the, the principles come out and, and wow you. And that's how kind of action movies work, right? There's kind of a, there's a plot, you know, like a good guy and a bad guy and whatever. Um, but you're waiting for the, the big action scenes. Um, and 
this movie feels and works a lot differently. The, the big action scenes, there's one in the end, right? An extended action scene with a large, you know, it seems like a lot of the budget went into that that end. But but up to that point, it is kind of like a run from Frankenstein movie. Um, and it's it's, you know, learning more about this world and what we don't learn about this world. Okay. The final category in round two is there's a storm coming in. It's time for question six. In many ways, the Terminator can be enjoyed by audiences of different generations. However, while the special effects may have been cutting edge for the early 1980s, there are times when these appear quite dated. What scene do you feel is the worst offender? And keep in mind, this is subjective. Locked in. Locked in. I'm, I'm going to be locked in, too. Okay. Tom, start us off. I think the worst offender is the non-puppeted exoskeleton, this sort of stop-motion exoskeleton in the factory. I think it's fine when it's a puppet, but I think it's, it's really hard to watch when, it is, um, when it's stop-motion. Okay. KJ. The uh, the one special effect that that didn't hold up, um, I guess it was that scene where he's taking his eye out. I think they made a, like an animatronic robot to do that, so it it kind of looks like something from um, Disney World, uh, one of the earlier earlier rides there, like the American Presidents or um, something like that. And it's kind of great because he is a robot, but it didn't feel like the same robot that he was before. It very much so felt out of place in the movie, even though it was a robot being a robot. Yeah, I, I don't know. The, uh, the, the animatronics, I don't think held up for that scene. Okay, Nick L., what do you have? I, I think when, uh, when the truck blew up and the, the skin came off, and then when he got up, it, it, it just looked like a puppet. It looked the way it was moving and walking and so on. It, it wasn't moving uh, as a good flow. It was like hesitating, and that's what came to my mind. Okay, and I believe that you and Tom are talking about the same sequence there. The points will go to Tom and Nick L. You are both going to get two points. However, KJ, you are going to get one point because that is the next big offender. I actually do agree. Of all the ones, the scene where he's chasing them and it's it's definitely cgi is it cgi do we have cgi at this point yeah yeah was it cgi or stop uh, stop motion <laughs> it i think it's stop motion because the first cgi was done in phases 2d and 3d cgi the first one was 1973's westworld the first time 3d cgi was used it was in its sequel the 76 film future world um, it was then used in uh, Tron in 82 and The Last Starfighter. Last Starfighter was a huge failure and everybody stopped using CGI until the 90s as a consequence. Um, until 1989 when James Cameron's The Abyss brought it back and it won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects. So It just it didn't fit in. It just, it just didn't flow. But I do love the practical effects of the chase. I think Tom was alluding to that too, when you see the shiny chrome and he's coming after them. Regardless of technology, that whole sequence really kind of pulled me out of the movie. The one KJ brought up 
was the next offender. However, the only reason I didn't think that was the worst is because of some of the reasons you were even conflicted with giving the answer. I actually do like that they lean more on practical effects. Although you're right, we clearly know that that wasn't the Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger ripping his eye out. The model does not look exactly really that close to you know Arnold's face. But I, I think in general, the use of practical effects were, were well done for the most part, so I kind of give them a pass. But I actually wanted to bring up this question to discuss not just the bad, but also the good. What were our thoughts regarding how this uh, movie was designed when it comes to sound, visual, any of that spectrum. So the sound was amazing. Um, I was pretty fortunate. I, um, I was able to watch this on the nicer TV upstairs with the, with the sound system. And I was really impressed with the, the shots fired, um, the, the trucks going around. The sound in this movie is, is, is phenomenal. That was one of my problems when I rewatched this movie. I was so disappointed because uh, I have an, uh, an infant in the house who was napping. So I had to put the volume much lower than I would have liked because it has that amazing sound. I, I actually like the puppet Arnold Schwarzenegger, the kind of plaster cast Arnold Schwarzenegger that takes the eye out. Um, you know, it, it it is clearly a puppet or clearly, a, you know, Hall of Presidents style thing. Um, but I think I enjoy it, and I think I enjoyed it even more than the uh, than the T one thousand in the sequel. I keep ragging on T two in this, and I feel good about that. But the the kind of the, the practicalness of it is enjoyable. And I have to say, I love the sound of the the Terminator's body when it's exposed, when the the ectoskeleton is exposed, and you know the with the with the hands and whatnot. Um, yeah, that was a that was a nice effect. Okay. Well, another another uh, strong week of competition here. It looks like Tom took it down with seven points, followed closely by Nick L with five points, and KJ not far behind at four points. So, Tom, congratulations on yet another week uh, victory. You just off of the Back to the Future trilogy champion, so you're you're on fire, my friend. Yes, I've been time traveling to the past and learning the questions. This is how I've been able to do it. <laughs> you know what? That gives me some solace to know that our recordings will be remaining in future time. So that, that's good to hear. Nick, I have to tell you about your future. Don't tell me. I don't want to know too much. <laughs> the night I go back. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we have to stop for a quick commercial break. Be right back. It's time for Who's That Terminator? Can you guess the Terminator based on this sound effect? Let's have a listen. If you guessed the T-1000, you're right! And we're back for Movie Rant! It's time for Movie Rant! I know it came up earlier in the episode, um, but a lot of the scenes with Arnold chasing Sarah Connor did remind me of the Michael Crichton, I believe, made-for-TV Westworld movie. Um, Spoilers, there's a robot in that movie who spends, I think, 40 minutes at the end of the movie chasing uh, guests through the park. And it's there's a lot of similar... uh, It's got a very similar feel to The Terminator. Um, so I recommend pairing that with the ter- with this with the Terminator if um, 
if you get a chance. I did think that over this watch. I think when I, I saw it back in the day, I just did not have Westwood in my lexicon of movies that I had explored. So I do see that connection. Wanted to discuss the chase in terms of the, the police department and the police scene, which I thought was really interesting. Um, because normally the, the cops are, I, I think, I, I said this before, right? That, uh, that James Cameron has a suspicion of institutions, you know, in all of his movies. And in, in this, the police are not really the bad guys at all, right? And what's interesting about them is we're given a lot, we spend a lot of time with the police, um, namely like uh, Lance Hendrickson's character um, and the, uh, his boss, whose name I can't remember. Both of these guys clearly have more lines than Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think. Uh, and, and we spent a lot of time with them. And they die pretty quickly, pretty unceremoniously. And then we just move on from it, right? So the, these guys are built up. We were given scenes with them before they meet Sarah Connor, with Sarah Connor, trying to solve the problems that, that Sarah Connor has, has brought to them. They're both likable, and especially the, um, the, the older man, the, the uh, man in charge, um, he's, he's very likable and very sympathetic. And the Terminator comes and just eliminates them. So there's all this faith the movie builds into these people. It situates them for being part of the plot in a major way, and they just die in a hallway. Um, I thought that was really interesting. It's, in this movie, they may not be bad, but aren't they also portrayed as straight up incompetent? I don't. I don't think Traxler. Traxler is the the older man, the the police captain or chief. I don't remember his title. I I don't think he's necessarily incompetent. I think the doctor is unsympathetic. The psych the psychiatrist Silverman. He's he's like a boob. Um, but even there, Traxler is like oh, okay. You know, he he knows how to measure measure things so that uh, that we're still working in the best interest of Sarah Connor. It's just that they're they're not competent when it comes to the you know destruction of the planet, right? Which I mean, who is uh, except Sarah Connor and presumably John? Um, and I, I just thought it was interesting. N not necessarily. I don't think they necessarily were incompetent. I, I think they were good men doing the best they can. Um, however, th the way the film treats them is is really it's really disturbing almost because it builds up faith in them and then just kills them and that's it we're done with them so i agree that the film portrays them as competent but one thing that i don't understand why they didn't do is they didn't send anybody to sarah's address right everybody figured out that the terminator was killing sarah connor's and everybody, like we saw that phone book, I don't know, four or five times with the address. And somehow Arnold Schwarzenegger found those addresses through the phone book. I'm trying to remember, if, are there addresses in a phone book? I don't know. But anyway. Yeah. yeah. Yes. They were. The cops don't send anybody to the address, which. But they said, call again. Yeah. Call Did again. Call I can't get a Did hold call of it. What do I do? And then, you know, the roommate dies. I, and I, I, I'm going to put that not on the cops, but they could have helped if they had sent somebody to the house to look for instead of just call her again. This is why I lean towards, and I don't mean to be harsh with incompetent, but like they didn't, like even everything they did wasn't enough. 
they said, oh, she'll call in. Then she tries to call in and all the circuits are full. Like everything they thought they would need to do, the standard rank and file, I think more. That one gentleman you're talking about, the leadership, he tried to do something or at least he put the thoughts together. But the standard rank and file, they were just there as fodder for the Terminator to come in on. Like that's simple as that. But now that I think about it, Tom, you're right. It is really creepy. I, I don't even remember their deaths. Like it was not important to the to the people making the movie that there were these characters and whoop, there yeah. they go ran through them just ran through them. Yeah, that that's what came to my mind because the whole movie, well, part of the mo- movie was about the uh, Terminator and that he had he he can just walk into anything and if you try to stop him, shoot him, or whatever else, it had no effect. And, and what brought out the fact is, like they said, he doesn't care. They have no emotions. They don't have anything. He just started, he, he walked in. The guy was at the desk. He blows him away with a shotgun. And another two guys had coffee come in. He just shoots them up. It was like like what, what uh, they were bringing out, that there was, there was no emotion. It was, it, was, it was a creature. And it didn't care. And he just went, all his mission was is to get Sarah corner and kill it and that was his mission. anything else like you said nick it, it didn't mean anything to it they, they were not, they were fought they were nothing and, and uh that's what i got out of, out of the movie and it was like took me back that these poor guys they're just coming out having a cup of coffee coming out of a room and they get blown and then another <laughs> three of them come out and say what is this is what's the terrorists for ter-? by the time the words finished out of their mouth they were blown away and then when the, uh, the lieutenant comes out, he tells Sarah, stay in, like the door is going to really help her. So she goes underneath the, uh, the desk. <laughs> and then the next thing you see, he's got the, the M16, and he's shooting, shooting, shooting. And, and then the Terminator turns around and blows him away. Then the other character looks at the lieutenant. He got emotional. He comes out, and he starts firing, and he gets blown away. It, it was, And then uh, Reese... He's the only one that had enough common sense to go slow, get the girl, and get the hell out of there. So you know what was going to happen. <laughs> but anyway, but let, yeah, that's what I got out of mm-hmm. that that scene. It was like they they couldn't do anything, even if they wanted to do something, they couldn't do it. We've seen action movies where a bunch of people die, right? That's pretty common fare, you know. Um, and I, I think what makes this movie more effective is the fact that we spend time getting to learn who these people are like spending time with them you know they they talk a lot to each other um they're friendly with each other they have personalities they're more personalities than kyle reese ever does um and i I think that's that's what worked for me as opposed to your standard action fair where we we kill four thousand people because you know uh that's that's the budget that the avengers had to do that Going back to Nick L's point, maybe the plot and the structure of the movie are echoing the Terminator. Maybe that character's coldness is uh, escaping the character and is infiltrating the the actual plot of the movie. And maybe the cops are showing that in a way. I was going to say that the 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 storm that's coming, the apocalypse of the movie, the the dark tone of it covers this entire movie. I mean, the, the movie does not unlike unlike its sequel does not offer you 
any kind of hope of avoiding absolute apocalypse. The storm is coming. We're all going to die. That is not avoidable. KJ, it's, it's not just the plot. It's pervasive in the characters. Let's look at Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor. Kyle, in order to beat the machines, he has to be as cold and calculated as the machine. Sarah, in order for her to prepare John Connor for the future, she needs to toughen up, make good decisions, and prepare for the storm to come. So in order to beat the enemy, you almost have to become like the enemy. But you, we do have to remember the, the irony in the movie, which is there is this moment of love, right? What ends up saving humanity literally by creating JC is uh, is this kind of moment of love that, that, that's sexual, but it's described at the end as, you know, the, the few moments we had. A few hours. Was, few hours <laughs> yeah. we had together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was, it was his first time, but he, he was better than that. Um, <laughs> the few hours we had together would be enough love to last a lifetime or, or something like that. Um, it, it's kind of a, a cheesy line, but it's also this human moment of creation, right? That, that does, that will save us in the end. Um, and it also points to an irony in the movie, the central irony in the movie, which is the unintended consequences of time travel is that you create John Connor, who will come back and destroy your system, you know, that will destroy Skynet. Yeah, I, what comes to my mind too, one portion of the plot of the movie is that it takes place when uh, Paul is in the is in the future, and I was after he had the attack, and he goes into the, where they're located, and he takes out the picture, and he sees Sarah. He has no idea that he was going to be the father. He had no idea whatsoever. So now he comes back to the to uh, uh, nineteen eighty four, and uh, the ironic part is. He still doesn't know he he's going to be the father. And even when they had he had the relationship with her, they didn't bring out the fact that he was aware that he was going to be the father of um, John Conrad. And this is the part that came to my mind. All through that movie, the only time it's brought out is when she's in Mexico in the car and the and the little boy takes the picture. And she, then she has the gun and she has the baby in her. And she says, you know, I, I forgot exactly what she said, but she was talking to the baby. But even then, that's the point where I think everybody gets the connection. Well, not that she's the mother, but that Carl is the father of John Connor. Yeah, I think they like allude to it earlier in the film like we make that assumption but that's, that's when it's right. fact that's what that I'm it's it's like now. okay just in case you missed it here here it is black and white do we get that earlier in the movie because they they they're in the hotel room and then the terminator comes and from there they're on the run the next time we break the timeline is is when she's driving off to mexico yeah. So I think without that that scene in the end, you you really don't know. But I think Nickel, your your point is well taken. That Kyle never learns that he's the father yes. of John. He never learns that he's the father of of salvation. Um, that he's he's given this role by John. I mean, literally, you know, John sends him. He volunteers, and and John sends him. Um, but he never really learns what his true role is, which is he he saves Sarah, but he creates salvation. Yeah. Which is kind of 
sad too. I, I mean, the, the movie is, I, I, I mean, I've said this a few times, but the, the surprise of this movie for me again, rewatching it after years and years of not, and you know, this movie now has been filtered through pop culture, right? I mean, the Terminator is, is just in the American gene pool <laughs> at this point, you know, we all draw upon it for, for, for cultural currency and conversation. Um, but the, the movie is very, very bleak. It's very dark and it's very sad. And I, 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 you know, I don't want to give this movie too much credit. I don't think Cameron is dealing with those emotions in a particularly nuanced or subtle way. But I think recognizing it as being very tonally different from its sequels is important. Um, and it makes the movie, I think, a lot more interesting. And, you know, generally like a lot, lot creepier. Well, it seems like this was a movie that was enjoyed by all, which doesn't always happen on these episodes. So I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to thoroughly explore the Terminator. Once again, Tom, congrats for taking down this week. Uh, you're on, you're on, a, on a roll here. So we'll see if we can take you off the high seat next time. Thanks again, Nick L, for joining us today. How about you remind people where they could find you on the internet again? I have a YouTube channel and it's called Nick Space L Space Trains. And I have uh, a lot of videos of my train layout and I share uh, my enjoyment with other people as well as they share their enjoyment with me. And I have my re least recent uh, video is, uh, running two diesel engines and one train set. And I think it'll be, you'll enjoy it because what I try to create on my uh, videos and running my layout is to give, give it more of a realistic uh, approach. In other words, uh, communication, the engine with the uh, dispatcher, the dispatcher with the engineer, and as they move, the different signals and so on. So I think uh, a lot of people enjoy it, and I hope that you will uh, visit and uh, enjoy the videos also. Thank you, Nick, for uh, mentioning it. I appreciate it. Of course, of course. And I, I hope our illustrious fans do check it out. I'd also like to thank our creative editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. Also, I'd like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss KJ's recommendation from Japan in 2013 titled, Why Don't You Play in Hell? Question mark. I don't know why. I'll find out soon. See you then. Ding, 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 ding. Great. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Really ah, enjoyed thanks it. for joining yeah. us, Dad. Yeah, yeah. All right, fellas. Uh, KJ, Tom, Nick, have a great day. Take care.